So this is an amateur community of creeps, one-upping each other. Traditionally, getting this kind of material into the country was hard copy publications that were shipped in from overseas. Yeah. You know, the internet had just crept in under everybody's guard. It wasn't until I went to the Child Abuse and Sexual Crime Group that I first got exposed to basically what was a home movie of an offender that we'd just arrested, and I can still see that. Because it was so shocking to you then. It was. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, we have... A very special guest on Life and Crimes, his name is Detective Inspector John Rouse. John, if we can call him that, has been with the Queensland Police Force for some decades now, but he has made his name worldwide in the fight against the rising tide of child sexual abuse with a task force called Task Force Argos. John, welcome to Life and Crimes. Uh, You have cooperated with some very fine filmmakers to make what I consider a very fine film. The forthcoming documentary, which is called The Children in the Pictures, which is actually the reason we're talking today. Thanks for making time to talk to us. You're most welcome and and thank you very much for the invitation. John, just so our listeners know, you know, who you are and where you come from, can you tell us a bit about how you got into the police force or in fact why you joined the police force? I think from our earlier conversations, you did originally join a bank. Yeah, okay. So just when I when I graduated from high school, I was still a little undecided about what I wanted to do with my life. Part of me wanted to be a musician and I had been performing in a school band and part of me had a desire. I recognised uh, an interest in being joining law, law enforcement probably around about year 10, year 11. Yep. This is in the early, early 80s? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so I, I graduated from high school uh, in 1981. In in Brisbane? In Brisbane, yeah. I was uh, yep. Morris Brothers at Ashgrove. So what I decided to do initially was just to explore the musical avenue. So I, I got a job in the Commonwealth Bank at Paddington, partly just as a, a tread water exercise uh, and also to fund, you know, I mean, musical equipment wasn't cheap, particularly when you're a synthesizer player um, yep. in the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. I joined a local band. We were doing touring supports for, you know, Eurogliders, Goanna, Pseudo Echo, um, Party Boys and Kevin Borich and all of the bands that were around at that time. You beauty. Yeah. Yeah, it was good fun. And then a couple of uh, couple of times while I was at the bank, believe it or not, the uh, we actually got held up. Yeah, and uh, which was an interesting experience to go through. And interesting in what way was it distressing? Well, you know, like I, I try to reflect back on this, and it, keeping in mind it's you know, God, well over thirty years now since that happened. So, but I, I can vividly recall, you know, hitting the the deck at the bank. Um, but I also remember making mental note to look at the guy who was at the tellers with the shotgun um, and recording details about what he was wearing and what he said and all of that kind of thing. And, oh, right. And when he, uh, when he left the bank, myself and another, another couple of guys followed them out and watched him walk down Great George Street, and at which point a car rumbled around the corner and headed down the street to pick him up, which was also a bit of a, yeah, we didn't think that one through kind of moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, you know, that was, I guess, one of the deciding factors that made me pursue the law enforcement career. That and also the fact that, you know, 
playing with the band as a job kind of killed the joy to a large degree, you know, like it became work. And ultimately then I, I, got, I got called up to join the force in 1984 and went into initially general duties and yeah. started at City Station and then I went to Ashgrove Police Station, Brisbane Mobile Patrols at the time, doesn't exist anymore. And then I did a, a pretty lengthy stint, actually about 12 to 18 months at the Brisbane City Watch House. Right. Uh, went from there to Mobile Patrols and partnered up with still, you know, one of my best friends on the planet. And we worked, you know, pretty much the way you see it, I guess, on TV. In those days, you had a permanent partner and you worked around the clock on shift work and high-speed pursuits, you name it. We did all of that kind of thing. And then both of us, a few years later, decided that we wanted to j- become detectives. So we both left Mobiles at the same time. I went to Turinga CIB, yeah, which doesn't exist anymore. And then I went to the Gap CIB. And it's while I was at the Gap that I got promoted to detective sergeant, and that position was based at state crime uh, at the child and sexual assault unit. Now, this is a random chance. You could have gone to, you know, the stolen car squad or God only knows what. It could have been anything. Yeah, 100%. I, I had no choice. That was, the, that was the vacancy that they promoted me into. Yep. And, you know, for me at the time it was um, – it was really pretty confronting. I remember actually when I got the call and I was told where I was going, I went, I can't go there. You know, I've got a daughter. Like my, my little girl was, was really, really a baby at that stage. <laughs> I remember the response, which is something we wouldn't do now, uh, was, oh, that's okay. Lots of people there have kids. It's oh, like, God. yeah. So, but that's the era, you know, that's, that's, that's a long time ago. Right now, if somebody said that, you know, when, when you were called up, Absolutely, one hundred percent. You would not be moved into a position where you, you know, you basically were calling out that you couldn't do the work. So, so yeah, I uh, I went into headquarters um, on the first floor, and uh, I started working uh, in the general child abuse unit at the time. And you know, that was really hard work. It, you know, you're dealing with the range of crimes that happen against children: neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. It was the the whole gambit. I think the thing that I found personally really difficult, which also shaped my future, was that I just couldn't see any way I was ever going to have a strategic impact on this. You know, you're never going to stop some of the issues that happen with kids coming into into families, you know. Dysfunctional families, you're sitting on a garbage tin lid almost. Yeah, like a, yeah. a lot of the things that we saw yeah. were, you know, single mums hooking up with the wrong guy and, and yeah. uh, you know, it. I just couldn't see a way that you could that you could long term affect that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess maybe there's something wide into me that you you actually want to have a direct influence and a longer term impact with what you're doing. Yep. So fortuitously, you know, around about this time, the internet was quite an emerging thing. Uh, I was building computers at home. I was a bit of a, a, a gamer as well. Yep. Uh, I had a lot of interest in technology. I. I designed and floated out the band's first web page, so so I was doing HTML coding back then. Yeah, um, and I was uh, I was asked by the detective inspector in charge of the unit if I wanted to have a look at the uh, I guess the threats, the um, opportunities that the internet was going to pose to us going forward, because we were starting to see from particularly from the United States that. They were they were making 
arrests for online grooming. You know, they were going online and posing as kids. And, you know, other agencies, there'd been a couple of large global operations that had occurred by that stage. So what year would this be? Uh, so this is late 2000, early 2001. Okay, right, yeah. So I was moved into Task Force Argos, I, and Argos at that stage was very, very much focused on institutionalised and historical sexual abuse. That was predominantly what Argos was focused on. Uh, so setting up, a, I guess, an internet-based team actually was probably a first for the country at that stage. It definitely was. So uh, I was given a couple of staff. We are all... I guess at that stage we were geeks. I don't think we qualify as geeks by any any standard these days, but back then we were, you know, uh, yep. very much all quite technically capable. And we started looking at the platforms that were available, IRC, bulletin boards, news groups, that kind of thing. Um, MSN Messenger had just emerged uh, as a communication platform. What were the bad guys doing on those boards? Uh, yeah, so IRC was Internet Relay Chat was the platform, yeah. and that was used for a range of things. Uh, one of the largest global busts that had happened in that era was the Wonderland Club, and that was a big network that was using IRC to, you know, do what we're seeing today, form networks, like-minded people sharing child abuse material. Um, but likewise, there was also a lot of just distribution, sharing of child abuse material across random people there. Uh, there was online grooming happening on there as well, so... You know, adult child sex offenders and kids on IRC. Um, so we were seeing that. And then MSN Messenger, which was, you know, that was a, a bit of a leap forward in technology at the time. Yep. That was then very much where a lot of our focus went on to for the next couple of years. Also, you know, over these next couple of years, some really significant things happened that, that changed the landscape in a big way. Um, there were some major operations that happened predominantly in the United States where, you know, the old clear, I don't know if you remember what it was like browsing the internet back in the early 2000s, but pop-ups were a really big thing. You know, you'd hit a website and like 65 pop-ups would come out on, on your web browser and a lot of lies were links to child abuse websites. That was the environment we were in back then. You know, click on the link and it'll take you to the website, then you would pay whatever the subscription fee was and you could get it into the website and download child abuse images. My God. Yeah, that, that was basically the environment we were working in. And keep in mind, we weren't all connected. We weren't networked. In 2003, at that point in time, there wasn't even criminal legislation in place that defined child abuse material. You know, it was pretty much the wild, wild west. So the concept that we could affect something that was happening in the United States or Germany or any, any other country was an alien thing to us. Yes, but, but regardless, you know, the US did a fantastic job in what was called Operation Falcon and uh, they took down the servers in the US and they sent the subscriber details globally. So every person that had used their credit card to purchase access to these websites was a target. And I think they sent about, you know, seven to 800 targets to Australia. Uh. And that was what became Operation Auxin. And that was... For me, still looking way back in time, that was the operation that pretty much changed Australia. Right. You know that at the end of that operation, we in Queensland anyway, we coordinated 127 search warrants in six days across the state of Queensland. Made you know nearly I think 80 arrests. 
here's the dinner party question. Yeah. And it applied then and it applies yesterday. What sort of people who are, you know, have they got horns and tails? Have they got, you know, warts coming out the back of their hands or are they the guy next door? Who are they? Yeah, at the media conferences at the end of of this operation, and we were in the we were in the media box for two days. Uh, that was probably one of the most common questions, and we were ready for it. So, ages and occupations were something that we were ready to provide the press, and they were all walks of life. Everything we had police officers, uh, you know, children's crossing guards, uh, supermarket shelf stackers, um, you name it, whatever occupation it was, they were they were caught up in that tweet. Sorry, anybody that you knew or knew of, you know, cousin of a old friend or guys that went to school at your school or no? No, I didn't. I didn't know anybody uh, personally that got caught up in it. Uh, there was a there was a Queensland police officer that was arrested as a result of it. That sent shutters through through the systems. It would. It sent shutters nationally. You know, this this was. You think about it. It was a phenomenal yeah. uh, wake up call to Australia. Yep. Because. Traditionally, getting this kind of material into the country was hard copy publications that were shipped in from overseas. Yeah. You know, the internet had just crept in under everybody's guard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had somewhere between 40 and 45% were married men with kids. So almost half of them were married men with kids. Correct. And how high and how wide? You know, who was the most sort of senior person in a social sense that, or professional sense that you? Without using names, if you don't want to, you know, a barrister or a... I actually can't remember if it was out of Falcon, but I, I do remember that there was a judge that was arrested. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it went up every scale. You know, there, there was people in, in the occupations that you would traditionally expect to be caught up in a sweep like this that have put themselves into... yeah employment that gives them access to children, you know, for example, teachers um, or scoutmasters. Um, that continues to happen today. Uh, but, you know, when we were asked the, exactly the question you just asked me, you know, do they have warts? Well, I don't know if you remember Dennis Ferguson, who was one of the more notorious child sex offenders in Queensland's history. Yeah, He was what you would call the, the poster boy for, for what the media would love to call a child sex offender. They don't look like that. Yeah. You know, like I said, married men with kids were caught up in that week. So you can't tell just by looking at someone. And these are many of them intelligent, high-functioning people. God, yeah, absolutely. And that, that continues to be the case today with the investigations that we do. And we'll be back after this. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Here's the thing. You've seen and apprehended so many of these people. It's not funny. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. What creates them? Do you think some people are hardwired with it or do you think something's happened to them when they were young at a certain age? Is there any sort of commonality 
It's a very good question. I think that there's multiple answers to that question. I think definitely that there is, as you said, hard wiring. You're born that way. Um, yep. You are born with a sexual preference, just the same as some people are born, you know, all of the different gender interests. Yep. Yep. You're born that way. You don't necessarily become that. Yep. Uh, and a lot of the child sex offenders that we've arrested, that's what they were, That and they can't escape that. It, it, it's a good question because it's something we're trying to explore now in terms of the prevention angle how can we get early intervention programs like stop it now from the united kingdom in australia where once you identify that you have this interest who do you turn to yeah you know and and surely that's got to be a good thing that they can actually go and get help and never act out on their sexual interest rather than hurting a child i would have thought so that someone like you and your colleagues would probably should be consulted about these things because you you can see what happens when they don't get any help, if that's the right word. Well, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, we demonise them and they're yeah, pursued and they're hunted and they're hated and vilified and hang them and yeah. all of this kind of thing. That, that kind of rhetoric really isn't helping the situation because after 20 years, we're, we're not having an impact. Yeah. You know, we're just continuing to identify and arrest. Uh, we have to have different ways of approaching this. You know, education and awareness of families and children to make sure that they're not put in a position, particularly with the internet where they're, where they're groomed, is one angle with education and awareness. Uh, but also we need to find and look at what modelling has happened overseas. And the Stop It Now program is being researched and, and progressively looked at being implemented in Australia at the moment, uh, which is a fantastic thing. Jesuit services are, are driving the charge on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to anything that stops a child being hurt. Yep. And, and we need to be very, very broad in our scope on this. I can understand, believe me, after what I've been through and what I've seen in the last 20 years, probably I'm, I'm very justified in hating uh, this particular segment of the community. Yeah. But that's not working. No. Um, you know, we've, we've penalised it, we've criminalised it, we've put enormous sentences in place. It's, it's not stopping it happening. So we need to be looking at other options. Did you ever see anything of this nature much before you joined the police force at school, for instance, or anything? Had you been at all exposed to any of this or was it all sort of a foreign country to you? In terms of the, like the child abuse material and distribution and possessional, yeah, look, God, I'd never heard anything about it. You know, there was, through your schooling career, you... You know, I was aware of investigations that ended up going through Morris Brothers, uh, with yep. brothers being at schools that I went to. In fact, you know, Morris Brothers, Canberra, there was arrest made. Yeah, brothers were convicted and sentenced. Yeah, um, but as a kid, you just didn't really understand that. Yeah, I mean, but believe it or not, you know, as a year seven or year eight kid, you didn't have really any concept of. You're so naive, you didn't know what was going on. Yeah, uh, and certainly. I didn't get exposed to any of this kind of a crime type during my early years in law enforcement either. It wasn't until I went to the Child Abuse and Sexual Crime Group that I first got exposed to basically what was a home movie of an offender that we'd just arrested, and I can still see that. Because it was so shocking to you then. It was, yeah, absolutely knocked me off my feet. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Uh, you know, those kind of things I think get burnt into into your retina and you never forget them, and I don't. I mean, there's been, I don't, there's just been so many cases, so many cases in the in the years I've been there now that 
you become very, very, very immune to the material and the content because you're focused specifically on trying to find the child. John, you've seen a lot of offenders over the 20-odd years. Do the men that offend, and it's 99% men, I, I imagine. Yeah, it is a very high percentage. A high percentage. Is it sort of that, you know, it is in the 90s, I imagine? Yeah, look, uh, the us arresting female offenders has occurred, um, but it is definitely in the lower percentage of the arrests. So, you know, if you did a 90%, 10%, you'd probably yep. be pretty safe. Oh, okay. Now, these people that do this, is it evenly divided roughly between, say, preying on their own biological children or is it people who have access to, you know, others such as stepkids, the partner's children, the neighbour's children, the children they look after for somebody else, all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, there's a there's actually a wealth of research that's been put into looking at this and access to the child is exactly what um, what the research shows us so you know brother sister aunt uncle mother father um, cousin your initial spheres of access and influence are the predominantly the people that are arrested for the actual physical contact sexual offending of children and then it moves in circles out from there with you know through the various other people that they're exposed to in their lives, whether it's, you know, through sporting associations or school or, or their gymnastics or whatever other interests the child has that puts them into uh, the reach and contact of, of potential child sex offenders. Just rule of thumb, what sort of numbers do you see a lot of fathers molesting their own children? Yeah, look, certainly a lot of the material, a lot of the investigations that we conduct, uh, we know that the offender, particularly with the uh, the child sex offender networks that we infiltrate, we know that we're dealing with a member of the family and in the most cases it is uh, it is the father figure. So I think the stats are somewhere between 70 to 80% of, of uh, contact offences against children happen within the family. Uh, and, and then you'll have, I guess that's horrendously alarming to people uh, because I would like to prefer to think that it's, you know, it's the hooded figure in the park, but that's that's really not the actual fact. No, it's someone known. Correct, yeah. What have you learned, you're a father yourself, albeit, you know, I suppose your children have now grown up, but this must have been food for thought and quite alarming when you're a, a, a young parent. What sort of rules did you put in place to say, well, I would never do this or this or this because I know that that can go wrong, you know, whether whether it's with school or gymnastics or whatever it might be, swimming? Yeah, well, that, that's a, a good question as well. So I, I remember because of what I was exposed to as a young investigator back then and particularly with what I was seeing on the internet Yeah, uh, and what I'd learnt in my time uh, working at the child abuse unit, I remember – you know, second guessing myself, dropping my daughter off with my with my parents. You know, her grandparents. Yeah. Um, and I, I I just look back and absolutely because you know, I've lost my mum and dad now. Cancer took them both. But I look back and just I'll never forgive myself for that. But I I, I can also reflect on the fact that I, it's because of the environment that I've been working in. But yeah. Because of the internet, I mean, one of the things that I I started very very early once my my daughter started yeah. access the net, was having those open, honest 
transparent conversations about online safety. Yep. Um, not accepting friend requests from random people that you don't know. And in fact, not talking to anybody online in a chat situation if you didn't know them in the real world. That was the rule. If you don't know them in the real world, you don't know who they are. That rule still exists today. Right. You know, we, we continue to see children that are engaging with people who they think are, you know, Justin Bieber, believe it or not. Um, and and yeah. it's not. You know, it's the, these sex offenders are very adept and knowledgeable about grooming children and convincing them and getting what they want from them. So what existed in rules 20 years ago is still in existence today. And so those were the kind of conversations I had with, with my kid. And, you know, she did. She came and told me, you know, this. I just got this random invite and I go, what do you do? Block it. Correct. Good girl. There's no good reason for any person who's not a child themselves, let's say. There's no good reason for anybody, you know, over the age of 12 to be making random requests of strangers, is there, to, to be their friends? Uh, hmm. Well, ra- random adults making requests of, for friendship with children has got to be seriously questionable, doesn't it? I would have thought so. Yeah. I can't, I can't think of a really legit reason. No, and, you know, that's that's part of what Sonia Ryan in South Australia drove with her Carly's Law because, um, you know, Sonia lost her daughter to online grooming. She, her daughter was murdered. And part of what that law was formed to address was exactly this, going online and pretending to be somebody who you're not to groom a child. Um, so, yeah, it's it's I, I would think that any adult, non-child sex offender listening to this would not disagree with us. Yes, it's just an, a, a strange thing to do, an inherently suspicious thing to do. You become a suspect automatically, don't you, if you engage in that behaviour, which is why on the other end of it, don't be ever thinking that he's Justin Bieber or whatever. It's not going to be a Hollywood actor or a singer. or 100%. You know, you, you'd have to be so incredibly naive to think that you're going to get in a one-on-one chat with somebody like, you know, yeah. God forbid, Justin Bieber. Yes. It, it's just, I guess, you know, loneliness, desperation, starst- all, the, all the different reasons why people would think that. But, you know, we did have one offender who, who did pretend to be Justin Bieber and successfully groomed 157 kids that we identified globally. Using the same routine. Using that routine. Very adept at it. And, you know, once this is part of the enormous social problem we're facing at the moment in, in our criminal investigations is the inundation of self-produced content. You know, these children are getting online now that the internet's fully mobile. That was probably the worst thing that ever happened was the mobile phone. Yep. The smartphone. Yeah. Well, yep. yeah. I'd tell you what, I'd give my child a dumb phone if I had the option now. Yeah. But you know, they can't monitor their children's usage. The golden rule back in the early 2000s when we were putting out prevention and awareness was always have the computer in a family area. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so kids are taking their smart devices into the bedroom and they're activating them, you know, after mum and dad even go to bed. Yes. Um, and tragically, what we're seeing in our seizures and in our victim identification teams is a, a, a very, very significant increase in content that children are tragically producing on their devices at the demand and sex extortion in many cases from child sex offenders. 
it's pretty clear what you mean by that, but having once established a contact with a child, they persuade them to do something which the child wouldn't want their parents to know about, and then they can just uh, blackmail them. Is that right? Pretty much that's it in, in, in a nutshell. You know, child will uh, be groomed to the point where they will flash or do, you know, do something, expose themselves. That's captured and that's it. They've got them. They'll use that then against them and they'll sextort them. And they're very good at doing it. And quite clearly from what we're seeing, children don't have the cognitive ability to, to deal with that. They're terrified. They don't want to tell anybody, particularly not their parents. Uh, and they go into this horrendous spiral. It, it, it's spiral. it's horrible to see. Do you know if any of these guys have been called out by the kids who say, righto, show mum, show dad, I don't care, call their bluff? Would that be a good a good technique? It's it's a gamble because of, you know, it's a, it would have to be a calculated gamble by the child to do that because you, you wouldn't know that the offender wouldn't then you know, chuck the link up on YouTube. So I, I'm not aware of a child calling. I'm sure it's happened, but I, I'm not aware of a situation where a child has called called the offender out. Uh, but there's online communities in Tor that are dedicated to just doing exactly what we're talking about here. They call it capping or capturing. Capping is the abbreviation of that. Yeah. Uh, and they just get these enormous collections of children, almost like scalps that they've managed to convince to to do this. And it's it's really quite horrendous to see, and you know, we, so you, you can see how we've how things have changed for us in the policing environment. We've gone from targeting online child sex offenders that are committing contact offences against largely intrafamilial abuse, yeah, to now trying to deal with this incredible insurgence of of children producing the content themselves, groomed by God knows who, yeah, and it's really stretching our capability to uh, to deal with it because. You know, every single day that I'm coming into work at the ACE at the moment, I'm getting requests from the NCA in, in the United Kingdom to get leads out to go and interview children in Australia, you know, th- that we're getting identified because they've arrested a kappa in the United Kingdom. Right. Now, is this a mixture of motives by the, by the bad guys here? Are some of them actually entrepreneurial figures, promoters in a way, who are gathering this material in order that they can disseminate it for some sort of profit? Look, uh, look, the financial exchange component of it, we're not seeing. Uh, you know, we're not seeing sextortion in that they, A, are on selling it or B, that they're, you know, trying to get financial gain from the child. No. So, no, not so much. It's, it's a common theme that we've been dealing with for many years now. The commodity is actually the material. The co- commodity is the image or the video. Right. Um, in networks, the commodity is that you have access to a child that elevates your status in a child right. sex offender network. So this is a, an amateur community of creeps, one-upping each other. Look at me, I've got 12 scalps. That's pretty much what we're seeing. Right. Leaving that aside, do we have in other areas, such as that terrible man in the Philippines a few years ago, Scully, where they are producing terribly violent assaults for a market where they are charging people sort of pay-per-view. Is that a thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like a, like if you go back to, I guess, what we talked about earlier, you know, the, the, early, the early investigations we did were these pay-per-view websites 
um, that's moved into a, a huge market in live streaming, particularly from the Philippines, where we've actually got you know Filipino mothers with their children live streaming to child sex offenders globally. That that's been going on for thirteen years, and I'm aware of. Um, you've got the likes of of Scully and what he did, um, and you've got we're aware of uh, darknet forums where you know you're paying cryptocurrency to get into them to get access to content. So there's still there's still a, a huge financial trade in child exploitation. Uh, on the other side, you've got what I just mentioned a moment ago, which is the that the commodity is the actual material that they've got. Right. Yep. So there's different different aspects. Totally different drivers, different motivations. It's it's an incredibly broad. Believe it, you would think that it's not. You'd think that it was probably fairly simple, but the longer you work in this particular crime type, the tendrils uh, and the different ways that it manifests itself is really quite broad. And it's very hard for one law enforcement agency, for example, to be able to cover all of the, all of the angles. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. John Rouse, it's been a privilege to talk to you. Uh, and I know that sounds like a pat little uh, cliched phrase, but it, it is a privilege to talk to a police officer who is widely admired for the work they do and uh, who's been so effective in something that is so important. Uh, and this is important in every family that's out there listening are going to have children or grandchildren and they're going to say, I think we should uh, listen to this because there's a big lessons here about screen time, about probably locking screens away at nine o'clock at night or whatever it might be. Uh, I think it's a whole frontier here that needs to be explored and policed and that families really have to take notice of the work that you and others have done. And so thanks for being with us. We look forward to seeing the documentary, The Children in the Pictures, which really has come about because of you. Our listeners can see that documentary on SBS from October the 24th, or it's available now. Go to childreninthepictures.org for more information. And don't be frightened to watch it. It does not have distressing images. It does not have horrible, brutal images, despite the fact it is a horrible, brutal subject. It's done with enormous restraint and refinement and to great effect. I thoroughly recommend it. John Rouse, we'll talk to you again next week. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. 
Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.